there, I'm Christopher Dorabek, the Dorabek Insider, and welcome to GovLoop's Dorabek Insider, where we focus on six words, helping government do its job better. Today, we're continuing our conversations with the finalists for, for the 2016 Service to America Medals, the SAMIs. It's, of course, the esteemed awards program sponsored by the Partnership for Public Service, which recognizes remarkable work done by career public employees. Yay! And we're lucky enough that we get to talk to these amazing public servants. So thrilled that we get to do that today. Well, today we're talking about a couple of things. One is AI, artificial intelligence, and there's a lot of, well, I'd say cautionary stories out there about artificial intelligence. Today we get to tell you a really cool one. It's about artificial intelligence systems for medics. And of course, in government, we all focus on results, right? Well, this thing saves lives. How cool is that for a result? Uh, the person behind this system is Jacques Reifman. He is a senior research scientist at the U.S. Army Medical Research and Material Command, and he is a finalist in the Science and Environment category for the Service to America Med uh, Medals. So first off, congratulations uh, on that recognition. Um, I want to get into what this system actually does, but I think, can I have you start and talk about, because they describe this as artificial intelligence, and it's kind of, and that kind of, I think there's a lot of boogeyman stuff going on about artificial intelligence. Is this really, is this artificial intelligence? And if so, what, is, what does artificial intelligence mean anyway? I think we don't fully understand that term. Yes, artificial intelligence can mean very different things and can be applied in very, di very different disciplines in very different problems. What we have actually done here, uh, think of as pattern recognition, if you will, where we can train a computer system, an artificial intelligence system, to uh, understand patterns in a, a trauma casualty's vital signs that are associated with life-threatening conditions. Mm -hmm. And you can also train it to identify patterns in vital signs that are not associated with life-threatening conditions. So that when you then, after you train the system, so to speak, you can then provide the patterns of the vital signs and the system can tell you what is the likelihood that you actually have a life-threatening condition. So this system is called APPRAISE, and of course, uh, you, you win the award for one of the best acronyms out there. Uh, APPRAISE stands for Automated Processing of the S uh, Physiological Registry for Assessment of Inju Injury Severity. Um, and this is one of these circumstances where, thank goodness, you created an acronym because no one would ever say the rest of that, right? Uh, uh, so tell us a little bit about this system. What does it actually do? How does it work? So the system, again, takes in basic vital signs, heart rate, blood pressure, respiratory rate, from conventional, off-the-shelf uh, hardware that are used in uh, helicopter transport, for example, and then takes in that information and automatically processes that data and sends an alert if it deems that those patterns in the vital signs are associated with the likelihood of a life-threatening condition. So folks at the hospital, even before the patient arrives at the hospital, would know if there is uh, if if there's a life-threatening situation here, right? That's correct. And what we have done is that we deployed that system in a civilian uh, air ambulance system. That even before the point of injury, during the transport of the casualty mm -hmm. from the point of injury to the hospital, the system can make a determination and alert. A potential alert are receiving hospital of the status of the casualty they're transporting. 
And and so this is, of course, uh, uh, in, in the war situa wartime situations or, or even in conflicts or whatever we call them these days, uh, this is incredibly helpful in terms of literally saving people's lives. If you're injured on the battlefield, people need to, people back at the hospitals where the folks are transported need to know, kind of, it gives them heads up about what they're facing, right? Oh, yes, correct. But also uh, can provide a determination should we... Um, transport, bring in a helicopter to transport the casualty yeah. now because he or she may die if we don't, or sometimes you get injured, but um, you can uh, be stable for many, many hours and don't need an immediate evacuation. So it could be used for triage and determination of uh, need for immediate evacuation. You're, you're kind of, I grew up on the TV show MASH, and, and this system almost, uh, uh, the whole triage process, which is critical to MASH units, almost uh, this does it for you, right? It helps, yeah, yes, right. it helps. It's, this is a piece, I, I get it. Um, and and I, I got how, how uh, this was put together with you guys and, a, and I guess a, a couple of hospitals up in Boston were part of this too, right? Yeah, many organizations with us here, contractors, we had uh, three hospitals that received the patients mm -hmm. in the Boston area, as well as what's called the Boston uh, Med Flight, which is the helicopter service that essentially transported the, where the system was, was deployed, and the helicopters that went from the point of injury to each one of three hospitals. And, and I was actually uh, doing some background research, and, and there's a publication called Shock, which I had no idea that something like this existed, but I was reading about uh, Shock did this. Uh, there was a whole study to see how, how well it worked, and it worked incredibly well, um, which has to be, uh, this has to be, I mean, this literally saves lives. Put, how did you come up with an idea like this that, hey, technology can help in this way? Well, it was because of the, the number one killer uh, of our service members in the battlefield, which is uncontrolled bleeding. Uh, the, the number one opportunity to save lives in the, in the battlefield at the point of injury is uh, identifying and treating those casualties who have uncontrolled bleeding. So that was the motivation, which is we're trying to... to to essentially find the, the biggest opportunity to save lives. And then uncontrolled bleeding is that number one opportunity that we, that's why we focus on it. Yeah. I think, I think people, you know, so often we always hear people talk about government innovation and, and people kind of make jokes, but uh, this is a, a government innovation. And, and people, I think, so often think it's just a light bulb that goes off. But my sense is that this was, this was kind of a collaborative effort. You, you being an essential part of it, but coming up with an idea of, hey, we have this problem, how do we solve it kind of thing, right? That's true. I mean, the majority of the military medical problems are very challenging. And for us to really attempt to solve them, we need to put together interdisciplinary teams. And that's really what we do here in our institute. We, we identify problems and put together the correct skill sets. And sometimes they do not always reside within ourselves. Yeah. So when we went out and found clinicians. We found uh, medics. We found other folks that needed to complement our skill sets to solve the problem. And, and actually talk to them <laughs> and make sure your assessment of their problem is the problem that they're actually facing, right? That's, that's sometimes becomes part of the... Part of the problem with doing things. That's correct. Yeah. Yes. 
Um, can you talk a little bit about how this is, I mean, I'm sure there was all sorts of testing processes that, that went on, um, but you, I mean, not only did you have to build this thing, but it had to be, it has to be a fairly rugged, rugged, and, and also it can't be a huge piece of machinery if it's fitting on a helicopter or in an ambulance or all those kinds of places, right? So there were those kinds of challenges as well in creating it. Exactly. So there are many different challenges, uh, including the, the technological t challenges that we had to overcome. Uh, the system had to be small, so essentially uh, the heart of the system is a computer system that you can hold in your hands, and that's the, really the heart of the system. And that system, you know, uh, we need to make sure that the system was fully automated, that would work without any human interference or input. We need to make sure that the system would work even if the vital signs were corrupted by noise artifacts in a helicopter. Uh, we need to make sure that the system work with a reduced memory and power in, in the, the rugged PC that we had. And I think that the key thing that you, 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 you were right on is that the operational challenges uh, when you develop technologies that you use in a laboratory, is one thing. But if you're going to develop technologies and hand off to um, a third party, and the system has to work. It has to work without right. you babysitting it. Right? Yeah. So it has to be rugged and has to work reliably, in particular if you talk about saving lives, right? You don't, you don't have time for Control-Alt-Delete or something like that or reboot the system. <laughs> it needs to work when you want it to work. That's correct, yeah. yes. It, it, it has. And, and, and we had, you know, it took uh, many years to get this done, and sometimes we, we learn things along the way. For example, we learned that a computer, so our initial computer was a computer that needed to be turned on, yeah. and that's not, that's not going to work. The, the, the computer needs to be on all the time, uh, because nobody's going to remember to turn on a computer. So the system had to be essentially passive, just being there, and the system would wake up when there's a new patient and go to sleep when that patient uh, arrives at the hospital. Um, it, 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 the reason I love, adore this story is that not only is, of course, saving soldiers, uh, warfighters' uh, lives, but there is very practical application to this in in those of us who aren't on any uh, aren't on the aren't in war aren't fighting the fight. There, this helps save everyone else's lives too. If you're ever in an accident or something like that, there's some kind of trauma. This can help save save. I mean, this helps everybody, doesn't it? That's correct. I mean, uh, the number one killer in the civilian setting for. Uh, a U.S. population under the age of 45, which is otherwise healthy, is really trauma. And you can imagine that sometimes you may have a trauma uh, far away from a, a specialized trauma center, maybe hours away. And such a system could uh, be used for uh, non-specialized or novice medics that may not know if what is the actual underlying condition of the casualty, or if again, if, do you need to transport to a, a trauma center or not? No. Um, how did you? Uh, how did you personally get into doing this? How did you end up at the Army Medical Research and, and Material Command and, and doing this kind of work? Yeah, that's that's a long story. But <laughs> I, I, I actually my my background is in physical science and artificial intelligence, 
and um, and when I saw an opportunity to come to work at the USR Medical Command uh, 15 years ago, I thought that that was a great opportunity for me because, uh, again, as I said earlier, the the difficult military medical challenges uh, can only be addressed uh, by an interdisciplinary team. Yeah. So I thought that I could bring to bear my background and experience in physical science and computer science and work with life scientists to address those problems. And uh, I think we, 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 we are doing that, and, and there are many, many problems to be addressed. And, and talk about, give folks a sense, because I think a lot of people who may be listening to this may never have heard of the Army Medical Research uh, um, and Material Command. Talk about kind of other things that you do in addition to this. So we have a whole host of, of projects that we here in the command uh, at large uh, addresses. So we, have, we deal with um, uh, military infectious diseases, dengue and malaria, where we might be deploying our troops and those uh, uh, infectious diseases might be endemic. Uh, combat casualty care that, uh, that this uh, project addresses. We have uh, projects in military operational medicine, for example, how do, there, uh, war, uh, how do I address uh, psychological stressors, PTSD, uh, limited sleep, uh, physio- uh, physical stresses, at high, high altitude and heat and cold. And also we have uh, projects in the Kimbayo defense area. So there are a whole host of military medical problems, both in preventing injury, preventing disease, diagnosing injury and disease, and treatment that uh, both ourselves and the command at large uh, addresses. And and when you said you decided 19 years ago to join the join the government, why make that choice? I, I hope it's not a huge shock to you, but public servants and public servants are are not always the top most popular people in, around around the country right now. Yeah, that's true. Um, and that is somewhat unfortunate because uh, there's a bad, uh, sometimes, connotation if you say you're a public servant. But, um, you know, I, I love my job, and I think there are a lot of other service, civil servants that love their jobs as well. And I cannot think of a more, more worthwhile uh, work, uh, work that's more meaningful than the one we do. And knowing that at the end of the day, we're doing that for the men and women that are really risking their lives so that you and I can have productive, uh, safe lives here in the homeland, my adopted country. So um, um, I, I find it is really worthwhile doing what we do. And as I, I, I get to talk to a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, public servants, and, um, and that's the thing that always comes through with almost uniformly is, uh, hey, I could make more money someplace else, but no place do you get this kind of, it's, uh, the mission is, hey, it's challenging, but if you do something like create a parade, uh, 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 this kind of system, wow, that uh, what could possibly feel better and how do you feel more fulfilled in your life, right? That's correct. And then and sometimes you are in a phase in our lives that uh, money is not really the motivator. Yeah. Motivator is, do you feel that you, a sense of accomplishment, a sense that, that maybe you can make a difference. Maybe it's a small difference, but it's there for you. And um, 
again, uh, like many other civil servants, I, I love my job. So what would you tell a young person who may be pondering going into public services some, of some kind? Uh, what would you say to them about, as I say, it's not the, always the most popular thing to do right now, but what would you tell that, that person? Well, I think you should look at uh, opportunities, you know, and what is that you love to do? What's your passion? And I must say that here at the Department of Defense, at the Medical Command, uh, for folks that have ideas, for individuals that have a passion and want to work hard, the main opportunity is to do good. Yeah. Uh, let me close out asking you, and I, uh, I kind of like, I mean, you're being recognized for this uh, very prestigious uh, uh, award and a finalist for the Service to America medals. Uh, uh, and I think people often would love to, they like to see your career, and we talked a little bit about that. Is there something you might say to yourself as you were, when you were just starting in your career? If you could write yourself a note today and to, to that person, you know, 20, 25 years ago, what would you say to yourself back then? In terms of uh, winning just, the award? But, well, just in terms of how, how you've gotten to a place where you're get, getting this kind of recognition, would you give yourself some advice? Yes. Uh, the advice is, you know, uh, no one does this because they're going to win any award. They, we do this because we have a passion. And I think that... and and. and and that's what I tell my kids, you know, find, I don't care what you do, but find something that you have a passion for. Because when you have a passion, you do something that you love to do. And it shows that maybe you get the recognition, maybe you don't. But uh, in the end of the day, you, you feel fulfilled because you, you're doing something that you love to do and you think is the right thing to do. So, um, but don't forget, uh, you have to work hard. I think that... Um, uh, you, one needs to be prepared for opportunities to help us, uh, but you need to work hard so you're always prepared, and that's what I try to do. I, I push my folks here to work very hard, but I also push myself to work just as hard, if not harder. So um, push yourself. Uh, don't uh, be afraid of working outside your comfort levels, and uh, work hard. And I think that uh, the chips would fall um, in the right places sometimes. He usually pays off, doesn't it? Jacques Reifman, he is a senior research scientist at the U.S. Army Medical Research and Material Command, and as I mentioned, a finalist in the Science and Environment category for the Service to America medals. Congratulations.